That's the first and greatest commandment as far as our culture is concerned. Love yourself. doesn't matter what other people do. You have to love yourself. Now, it's interesting that God's first commandment is, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and soul and mind and strength. It's interesting how the, the cultural commandments and God's commandments are so different. No, cultural commandment number two, I think, is love the earth. Recycle, protect the forest, love animals, protest oil and gas, and the list could go on. The third one might be love your community. Shop local, volunteer, get involved somehow. Fourth one might be love others. This is a little out today, update, but distance, wear a mask. I know you don't, we don't have to do that so much anymore, but I think you'll see people still doing it for quite some time because of the way that we are. And I, I wore mine when I came in this morning. And the fifth one might be love God. Be a good Hindu, Muslim, Buddhist, doesn't matter what you worship, but it's good to love God as you perceive him to be. So those are just a few suggestions about the things that our culture says to people and uh, impresses upon them in many different ways. Now the word love, you may have noticed, appears often in my list of cultural rules. It seems obvious, I think, that our culture, our society, is in love with the idea of love. The word is used so often it's hard to know what it actually means. I love your dress. I love ice cream. I love my country. Love is used in the same word in many different contexts. And from a cultural standpoint, loving God, I put it at the last of the cultural rules, loving God from a cultural standpoint is not really that important. Our world says, well, if you keep the other rules, number one, two, three, and four, you're good. You don't have to worry about loving God. He knows you're a good person because you're keeping all the rules, right? After all, God is love, right? So you may have noticed, as have I, that people who don't really know much about God like to bring up the fact that the Bible says God is love. That's kind of their definition of God. So today we want to talk about that famous biblical statement and, and try to get a little bit of clarity on it from what the Scripture says to us, that God is love. One day, um, quite long ago, I was leaving for a road trip in my role as regional director, then district superintendent for the AGC churches in Western Canada. And my wife was quite good about letting me head off on another trip, though it meant we wouldn't see each other for seven or eight days. And I don't remember where I was headed that day, but as I left, Carolyn gave me my lunch for the day. And at noon, when I stopped to eat, at the bottom of the bag was a little note from Carolyn. And this is what it says, said, as many nights endure without a moon or star, so shall we endure when one is gone and far. And since that day, that we note has occupied a prominent place in my journal because assurances like that from Carolyn and the knowledge that she'd be waiting to welcome me home helped me through those seven to eight to ten day stretches that I had to be away and helped me to go on with the work God had called me to. So love is a wonderful gift that God gives us to, us to us as human beings to enrich our lives. Now, our personal experience of human love can help us understand God's love for us, but it can also hinder us on occasion. And with that in mind, let's begin our study of the statement, God is love, by reading uh, 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 16. So if you have your Bible... Um, or can find one in the pew or the chair uh, rack underneath. First John chapter four, uh, verses seven to sixteen. <clears throat> First John chapter four, verse seven. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation the sacrifice offered to turn away God's wrath for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 
No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Father, thank you for your word that we can study and read. Thank you you've given us a book that we can pick up at any time, that we can memorize, think about, study, meditate on. It's meant to be a guide for our lives. Your word tells us that your word is a a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And so we pray that you'll enlighten the path of life for us today through your word in Christ's name. Amen. So God is love. Twice in this uh, 1 John 4 passage, the apostle says God is love. In verse 8 he says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And then again in verse uh, 16, uh, God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. So God is love, three words. What, what do those words mean? Well, G.I. Packer, who's died and gone to heaven now, but as a tremendous scholar, teacher at Regent College, and over in England for many years too, um, G.I. Packer says, and I quote, St. John's twice-repeated statement here is one of the most tremendous utterances in the Bible and also one of the most misunderstood. False ideas have grown up around it like a hedge of thorns, hiding its real meaning from view. Then another famous evangelical from a bygone day in the middle of the last century, A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, says this, and I quote, oh, sorry, he also says that uh, people, he also expresses concern, I'm sorry, about what happens when people misunderstand this phrase. So as we begin then, I want to consider with you in a general sense what this truth, God is love, means. And I've given you um, a little outline for those of you who have it. Uh, the, many of the scriptures I use are on the back of that uh, piece of paper. Um, and it just kind of helps you. I know I can never talk as fast as you can think. So every once in a while when you start drifting, let that jerk you back just a little bit, that little piece of paper. <coughs> so first thing I want to say to you is that we must take care in how we use this statement. God is love does not mean that God equals love or that God and love are the same thing. Our God is far too complex, far too majestic to be reduced to any one thing, even something as admirable as love. For example, the Bible also tells us that God is light. The Bible also says that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And from that, we would not imply that you can know the totality of God by understanding the theory of light. When the Bible says God is light, it does not mean that if you understand the scientific concept of light, that you'll understand God. That's not true. So you can't always just take things totally literally in Scripture. It's a good thing. It's it's generally the way that we understand it, but sometimes we need to think a little broader than that. So these kinds of phrases, God is light, God is love, must be seen as short, summary descriptions of what God in his being is truly like. It's also good for you to remember, using a big word, that the Bible is written in anthropomorphic terms. In other words, the Bible is written in such a way that we can understand it. You see, if God um, were to communicate with us on his level, we wouldn't get it. So he allows he, he, he sent men to write the scriptures and r- uh, worked in their hearts so they wrote in words and concepts that we can understand. But those terms, we need to remember, still fall far short of fully explaining what God is like. He's much bigger than what we read in scripture, even though that what we do read in scripture is true of him. So God cannot be defined by or reduced to any one thing. 
His greatness is far more even than the sum total of all of his attributes. If you're going to think about God, you need to allow your mind to expand just a little bit because our minds are nowhere near big enough. And Paul, in Romans chapter 11, verse 33, says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Inscrutable meaning you can't understand them. They're beyond us. So then, if we take the words God is love too literally, we can be led astray. As I mentioned, God is love does not mean that God and love are identical. That cannot be true because with things that are identical, you have to be able to reverse the statement. So if you say God is love, then you have to be able to turn the statement around if it's true that they're identical and say love is God. And that is not the case. Now, the thing is that this is so far from the truth that love is God, or love is supreme, or love is to be worshipped, which is what we would be saying if we said love is God. And yet, many people in our world today live as if that actually were the case. They believe that love is supreme. They believe that love is the center of everything. And love, as I understand it to be, is used by many people to justify the things they, they do. That's why someone may say, yes, I'm sleeping with my boyfriend, but it's not wrong because I love him. That's taking love to justify sin. And that's not what God intended when he said and allowed people to say about him that God is love. In our world, really, almost any kind of sexual behavior, no matter how contrary it is to God's word, is viewed as being love and is often hotly defended. And that distortion of the truth about love is a major cause of pain and trouble in many, many lives in our world today. You see, in our culture, biblical truth and rational thinking have largely been abandoned and emotion reigns supreme. And that's the danger in thinking that God and love are identical. So God is love does not mean that. So what then do we mean? when we say that God is love. Well, uh, the two authors I quoted earlier, I'll I'll just use them again to um, try to help us understand. Um, J.I. Packer says this in a quote, God is love is not the complete truth about God so far as the Bible is concerned. It is not an abstract definition, but a summing up of what the whole revelation set forth in Scripture tells us about God. The love that he shows us And the love which Christians know and rejoice in is really a revelation of his inner being. It shows us what God is like inside. And then again, A.W. Tozer, and I quote from him, the words God is love mean that love is an essential attribute of God. So love is something true about God, but love is not God. It expresses the way this statement does that God is in his essential being, as do the words holiness and justice and faithfulness and truth. Because you see, you could say the same thing. God is holiness. God is holy. The Bible says that over and over. God is just. God is faithful. God is truth. And from those other attributes, like the attribute love, we learn about what God is like. So from God's um, self-existence, for example, we learn that his love has no beginning or end. Had no starting point, no ending point. His love is eternal. Because he is eternal, his love has no end. Because he is infinite, it has no limit. Because he is holy, his love is always a holy love. It's not something that is the way that our society thinks about love. So God is love then is not an abstract definition, but is God's way of revealing to us what he is like. It's an essential attribute of God. And best of all, for us as Christians, God is love means that his love finds expression in everything he does. Everything he does, even in punishment and judgment. So you and I can fully trust God because he is love, and he will always act towards you in love. Sorry for putting you on the spot, but I had a great example of this this morning, and so I'll I'll use it. I hope they won't mind. So when I saw uh, Randy and Debbie come in, I said to them, I thought you were supposed to be way in the wilds of Africa. 
And they shared with me the story that I hope we'll get right, but basically they tested positive for COVID at just the wrong time. Day before, they weren't. Day after, they weren't. But just on that one day, they were. And so they couldn't go. And um, I'm using this as an example of the fact that you can always trust God because he will act in, toward you in love, even when it seems like it's a disaster or something that you just assume I didn't have. So you can get the real story for them in case you already haven't. Um, or the, the bigger part of the story. So what is the best way then for us to understand this attribute of God is love? Well, the Bible, of course, is the only reliable source of knowledge we have about God. And so from the scriptures is where we need to learn about God's love. And so what I want to do is simply take two things that the Bible says about the love of God. And that's my next two major points uh, before I finish this morning. So the Bible tells us then that God's love, secondly, may be different than we realize. God's love may be different than we realize. So God is love, but the love of God may be different than we think about it. And as we've noted already, the, love, the word love is misunderstood and misused in our day. As I mentioned before, a person could say, I love apples, and five minutes later say, I love God, and use the same word to talk about how they feel about fruit and how about they feel about the eternal God of heaven. In our culture, the word love can be used to describe how a man and woman feel about each other, whether they've been married for 50 years or whether they're on their second date. You can see there's quite a difference there. Uh, D.A. Carson says, and I quote, The love of God in our culture has been purged of anything the culture finds uncomfortable. The love of God has been sanitized, democratized, and above all, sentimentalized. End of quote. So it's foolish then for us to take our culture's concept of love and try to apply it to our understanding of God and his love. So we want to broaden our thinking a bit. And, we're, and to do this, we're going to look at what the Bible tells us about God's love. Somebody's forgot to set the clock ahead. <laughs> so it's only quarter after ten. Got a long morning. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <clears throat> So let's look at what the Bible tells us about God's love. Um, Don Carson, uh, I mentioned just a minute, moment ago, an evangelical scholar quite well known, has a small book entitled The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. And it's a great book to read because it'll help you, I think, to clear up some questions about God's love. For example, we're not going to talk about this this morning, but one of the questions he addresses is, so how can the wrath of God or the anger of God towards sin and his love exists together in the same being. Those are the kind of things that he addresses in the book. And in his book, uh, the part that I want to use today, uh, Dr. Carson corrects some mistaken ideas about God's love. And one of the mistaken ideas is that many people think that God loves everybody the same way. And Mr. Carson from Scripture, which I'll show you in a moment, says that that's not really the case. So let me just talk to you about those four distinct ways that I've given you on your outline, four distinct ways that the Bible talks about the love of God. And the first of those ways is that the Father loves the Son in a unique way. God the Father loves God the Son in a way that he loves no other being. And this is called the intra-Trinitarian love of God. <clears throat> In other words, it's the love that exists between the persons of the Trinity. So from the Gospel of John tells us that often that the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. You find that over and over again in the Gospel of John. So each member of the Trinity has loved the other members of the Trinity from all eternity. And that facet, this, this part of God's love, helps us understand that God is fully satisfied with the wonderful love that flows between Him and the Son, Him and the Spirit, and between all the members of the Trinity. So God has no need of any love outside of himself. Some people said, well, God just created people because he wants somebody to love. But God is fully satisfied already with the love that exists between himself, the Son, and the Spirit. So God loves the Son of God, Jesus, in a totally unique way. 
Second thing the Bible tells us about God's love is that God loves and looks after everything he has made. So the Lord Jesus refers to God's love as he speaks of the beauty of the wild flowers. He says that these flowers, the grass of the fields, is clothed in a way that even Solomon and all his beauty can't approach. And he talks about God's care for the birds. And then Jesus, along the line of what Jordan has already said to us this morning, kind of presses home the lesson. And he says this, If God so clothes the grass of the field, Matthew 6, If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, those beautiful flowers, and tomorrow thrown into the oven to create heat, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So Jesus is pointing out that if God looks after the grass of the field and the birds of the air, he's going to look after you because he says you're much more important than the birds. And so we say we're not to worry because God is going to care for you and will look after you because God loves all that he has made, as the scripture says. The third thing about God's love that the Bible says, <clears throat> separate from the other two we've already covered, is that God loves his fallen world. He loves the world of people. And that's the verse that you hope I've, I hope you've memorized. If not, it's a great one to memorize. That, that God so loved the world of people that he gave his only begotten son, his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So, you and I live every day in a world of rebellious people. And many of them want nothing to do with God. I don't mean that unkindly about them. That's just the way that they are. They say, I can make it on my own. I don't answer to anybody. I do what I want to do. So the world is full of rebellious people. And yet the interesting thing is that God sent his son into this world not to condemn those rebellious people, but rather to welcome them to be saved, to come into his presence and into his family. And so in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, we read that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So one of the best demonstrations of God's love for you is that Jesus came into the world and at this Easter time that's coming up soon here, he died on the cross to pay the price for your sin and for mine. Now to satisfy his infinite holiness, because God is holy, God must stand in judgment over the world of people. And yet in his great love, he also invites the world of people to repent, to be saved from their sin, to be saved from hell, by trusting in and following his son, the Lord Jesus. So God loves the world of fallen people. The Bible says God is not willing that any should perish, but that every single person should come to repentance. That's God's will. Well, the fourth thing that we find about God's love is that God particularly though loves those whom he chooses to belong to his family. God sets his love, <clears throat> his affection on his chosen ones or his adopted ones in a way that he does not love other people. And one of the best ways to understand that is how you love your children. <laughs> Someone once said that home is the place that when you go there, they have to take you in. <laughs> Doesn't matter how bad you've been, it's home, so they've got to take you in. And that's how we love our children, right? We love our children not because they're the best kids in the world, although sometimes they are, not because they always behave properly, not because they get straight A's, although sometimes they do, not for any other reason but because they're our children, and they always will be. And so regardless of the age that you get to as a person, turn the big 7-0 this year, so it's, you know, when, when you get to the point where the Bible says you've had your three score years and ten, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a wake-up call, right? From now on, you're kind of on borrowed time. So, so you will love your children as long as they live. Regardless of where they go, what they do, or all those other things, you will love your children. More than, differently than, you love the other kids on the street who are playing and all that kind of stuff. 
And so God sets his love and his affection on his people, his family, in a way that is completely distinct from those who do not belong to his family. So God sets his love on certain people and he chooses them and we don't have time to go into that this morning. Not because of anything they've done, but simply and only because he chooses to love them. And God's love to his chosen ones is different from how he loves the world. So I've given you on your little handout there, if you want to look at it, Malachi chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. It's an amazing verse. So it's interesting to keep track of the 316s in the Bible. So John 316, we know. Here's Malachi 316. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. And the Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. It's an amazing verse. That when you talk with other Christians about God and about his goodness to you, and you show your love for him, I don't know if that book is still being written or not, but it was back then. And I wouldn't be surprised if it still was. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, these ones who fear me. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son or his daughter who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. So God does not love everybody in the same way. He loves those who serve him, those who fear him, in a completely different, more intense way than those who are rebellious. He still loves those who are rebellious, who don't want anything to do with him, and he, and he calls them again and again to come to him. The Bible says many are called, but few are chosen, right? But there is a distinction between the person who serves God and the one who does not serve him. So I hope that those four distinct ways that the Bible speaks of the love of God will help us to understand um, a bit more how complex and how wonderful God's love is. <clears throat> but for the last few moments here, I want us to think more particularly about how does God love you as a, as a Christian. If you're a believer here this morning, if you love God and, and uh, have responded to him in repentance and, and, and for your sin and faith. How does he love you? What, what is his love for Christians like, for those he has chosen and adopted into his family? Well, I could say a great deal, as you might imagine, but let me simply talk to you, say, give you three things, three ways of what, of what God is like toward those in his family. First of all, God's love is steadfast and everlasting. God's love is steadfast and everlasting. The Lexham Bible Dictionary tells us that the most frequent noun for love in the Old Testament is the word pronounced chesed. And I won't ask you to pronounce it. But it's an important word, H-E-S-E-D. And if you're studying your Bible, you need to know that that word occurs over 250 times in the Bible. And that word for God's love is translated in different ways, because it doesn't actually have a clear equivalent English translation. There's not a specific way in the English language that you can totally sum it up. So the King James calls it God's loving kindness. The ESV says it's God's steadfast love. The Living Bible, I think it is, calls it God's loyal love. So why does the Bible use this word to describe God's love? Well, steadfast, something steadfast means resolutely or dutifully firm and unwavering. So apply it to God's love. God's love for you is resolutely firm and unwavering. He doesn't get mad when you sin him and say, well, that's all for that person. And I've experienced this many times in my life. I've deserved to be kicked into the middle of next week. Instead, God blesses me. In fact, the Bible says that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. When God is good to you, it makes you ashamed of the way that you've acted toward him. So God's love for you does not change. Every day he is steadfastly loyal to 
his children. So in April of 2019, before I had my transplant, I had a bunch of gallbladder problems. I solved them all when they gave me a liver transplant because they just took the gallbladder out with it. And now I take a pill to account for the work of the gallbladder. But anyway, I was lying in the hospital, Foothills Hospital, for four or five days with gallbladder problems, which means normally you can't eat much at all. And when I was there, there was a verse that God brought home to my heart, and this is the verse, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. I encourage you to memorize that verse. I have loved you, God says, with an everlasting love. And therefore, I've continued my faithfulness to you. I haven't continued my faithfulness to you because you've been so good or because you're such a great person. I've continued my faithfulness to you because I've loved you with an everlasting love. So God's love is everlasting. It never ends. And the Bible teaches us that God's steadfast love and His great deeds of faithfulness go together. He says, I've loved you with an everlasting love, therefore I've continued my faithfulness to you. So God's love, His faithfulness always go together. Psalm 107 says, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from trouble. So when you see God's steadfast love exercised in your life through His faithfulness to you, you're supposed to say so. You're supposed to let the redeemed of the Lord say so. So tell somebody else that God's been good to you. His love for you is eternal. We also see in Scripture um, about God's love toward those in His family that God's love for His people is not based on who they are, what they have done, or what they will do. Deuteronomy chapter 7 Uh, Verses 7 and 8, God says there to his people Israel, applies to us as well in a broader sense. Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8, God says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. So God is saying to the people of Israel through Moses, I set my heart on you, my love on you, you, not because you are a great people, but simply because I love you. So it's clear in the Old Testament with regard to Israel. It's clear in the New Testament regarding Christians, that God in eternity past made a purposeful choice of those who would be his children. He does not do so because of anything in us that is good or what he sees we will do. He chose Israel and saved them out of slavery because he loved them simply and was keeping the promise he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, a verse I've given you on your outline there, we read Paul addressing the, the Christians in Ephesus God chose us in him, that is in Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So long before the world was ever born, God looked ahead, if you're a Christian today, and he saw you, and he chose you to be his child. Now, some people rebel against this idea as if God's kind of running their life for them. I hope you won't feel it, see it that way. I hope you'll take great comfort in the fact that God, because of his great love, simply chose you to be his child. It's not because of anything you've done. It's, so we can't be proud about it. But it's something that God just does because he wanted to, because he loved us. And so God chose those people, and as we came into the world, he adopts us as his children. He brings us to faith in a mysterious process. For me, it was in a little country church, well, a little small town church in Arcola, Saskatchewan, the back row of the church. When K. Neil Foster, an evangelist who's dead now, was preaching 
I didn't go up to the front when he gave the call. I simply responded as I sat back there with my friends. Didn't have the courage to go forward. But that's the day that God changed my life. He brings us to him in many different ways, but he adopts us as his children. Well, the third thing about God's love is that it's personal. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses <clears throat> 17 to 19, Paul prays for the Christians in Ephesus, and this is what he prays, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So Paul prays for the Ephesians and for all of the saints, <clears throat> including you and I, that we may have strength to comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth of what? Well, we don't really know for sure. It doesn't say here. But since Paul goes on to say to pray that these believers will know the love of Christ, it's likely the love of Christ that he wants us to know the height and depth and length and breadth of. So Paul says here, and it's good for us to ask questions about Scripture, Paul says here that the love of Christ surpasses knowledge. So the question to ask is, so how can we know something that surpasses knowledge? How can we possibly know something that's beyond our knowledge. And I think this means that we can only know something like this, like the love of Christ, by using a faculty, a sense that is different than knowledge. And the way that you and I can most truly know the love of Christ is by experiencing His love. Not by knowing it with your head, but experiencing it in your daily life. <clears throat> you see, knowing the love of Christ is much different than knowing about the love of Christ. You can try, you, know, you and I can try to describe to a person who is blind what the trees and the mountains and the sunshine and the water are like. We may not do a very good job. We can try. But it's only when God opens their eyes that they will really know what those things are like. Fanny Crosby is a hymn writer who you may not know, especially if you're a younger person, but she wrote literally hundreds of hymns. And someone once asked, oh, sorry, one other thing you need to know about Fanny Crosby, she was blind. So that was one of the ways she expressed her love for God was by writing these hymns, even though she was blind. <clears throat> and someone once asked Fanny Crosby what her favorite hymn was of all the hundreds and hundreds she wrote. And she replied by quoting one of her hymns. Someday the silver cord will break and I no more as now shall sing. But I know that when I awake within the palace of the king, I shall see him face to face and tell the story saved by grace. So Fanny Crosby's favorite hymn was one in which she thought about what it's going to be like when she sees Jesus. She's blind. But she, he is going to be one of the first things that she sees. So my friends, God wants us to know his love in a personal sense. He wants you and me to experience Experience his love, not just know intellectually about it. And when we do, Paul says here in these verses that we will be filled with all the fullness of God. That's what this scripture says. God prays that you might know the love, or Paul prays, sorry, that you might know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So my friend, what I'm saying to you is that you will not be filled with all the fullness of God until you know the love of Christ. You know it personally, experientially. And I hope, and I think many of you have, I hope you've had a taste of being filled with all the fullness of God because of your knowledge of Jesus. Experiencing Him in your daily life. 
watching him, seeing him provide for you, and knowing that he's there, and, and as you read his word, sensing him speak to you. It's unforgettable when you know the love of Christ in that way. God wants you to know and experience his love because his love is personal. Well, the last thing I want us to consider about God's love this morning is, is this, that God's love is fully expressed in his son, Jesus Christ. God's love is fully expressed in his son, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Hope you haven't totally closed your Bible because I'm finally getting back to our text in John, 1 John 4. You see, God shows love to people in countless ways. He speaks to them through his creation, through other people, through his word. He cares for them. He provides their daily needs. He watches over their steps. He protects them from danger. So God shows his love in many ways that we sometimes don't stop to think about. But God also reaches out to, every, to people every day through his word, by his people, and by his spirit. That's As you go to your workplace, wherever it may be, you are to be the hands and the feet of God where God has put you. It's through you and your life that, that God wants to show his, his love and who he is to people around you. But the fullest, most powerful expression of the love of God for human beings is found in the life and the death and the resurrection of God's own dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see this in today's passage, <clears throat> 1 John chapter 4, verse 9 to 11. In this, John writes, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. The implication there is that apart from Jesus coming into the world, we're dead. And that's what the Bible says. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. So God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Verse 10, and this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation, the sacrifice offered for our sins. So here in verse 10, John gives us a clear definition of love. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to die for our sins. So we didn't reach out and find God by our own persistence and skill. No, when we were helpless and dead in sin, God loved us and sent Jesus, his son, to set aside God's just and holy wrath against our sin by paying the price of that sin for us on the cross. <clears throat> in 1890, a few years ago, Francis Thompson, a, a young man of 31, wrote a poem in which he talks about the experiences of his life with God. It's a huge poem. But here's a little bit of it. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind, and in the midst of tears I hid from him, from those strong feet that followed, followed after. But with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat, and a voice beat more instant than the feet. All things betray thee who betrayest me. Francis Thompson's poem is called The Hound of Heaven. And it calls our attention to what Jesus tells us about himself in Luke chapter 19, that the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. That's why he came. That's why Jesus came, to seek us who are lost. So you might ask, so how strong is the love of God? <clears throat> How can I possibly save and keep a sinful, wandering person like me? I think Paul had those kind of questions in mind when he wrote these words. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. That's what the Bible says. 
It may seem in your life that many things are trying. Death or life or angels or rulers or sickness or financial problems or things you're going to face someday. The list goes on and on. But God says here in his word that his love is so strong that absolutely nothing can separate you if you're one of his children from him and from his love. Well, as I conclude, one challenge of this sermon has been to try to describe with words what is almost indescribable. And when words are insufficient as human beings, we often turn to music. In 1917, over 100 years ago, a man named Frederick Lehman wrote a song. Mr. Lehman was a California businessman who lost everything in his business because of problems, business reverses. And he was forced, through losing everything, to spend his working hours packing oranges and lemons into wooden crates. That was his work. He was doing manual labor. Well, Mr. Lehman was a Christian, and one Sunday evening he was so moved by a sermon on the love of God that he could hardly sleep. And all through the next day, as he packed oranges and lemons... The words for a new song began flowing through his mind. And when he was finally able to get home to his battered old piano, this is the song that eventually emerged. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. Mr. Lehman wrote another verse to the song that I'm not going to quote. But he only had two verses to his song. In those days you needed three. And, and one day, many years later, on the wall of an insane asylum, was found written these words. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, <clears throat> to write the love of God above, would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure. The saints and angels song. Father, how we thank you for your love for us. For all of the world, really. Thank you that you love the things that you made. Thank you that you love people who are rebellious against you and you call them to to come to you in repentance and put their trust in your Son, the Lord Jesus. Thank you that you love your Son with a total unique love. And thank you that you've adopted those who are Christians, those who believe in you and trust in you, into your family, and you love us with a love that is different from the way you love other people. Thank you that your love is steadfast and enduring. It's an eternal love, an everlasting love, and because of that, your faithfulness to us continues. And so, Father, as we go from this place in just a few moments, and as in the next few moments we celebrate together the Lord's Supper, remembering the love of Jesus that brought him to this world to die for us, we pray that your love for us might humble us and thrill us and give new purpose to our life, new direction, that we might go and tell others that they too can know this love of God, so rich and pure so measureless and strong. And so we entrust ourselves to your care now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if anyone has actually been asked to serve communion, but um, in just a moment I'll call if you have been. If not, I'll just ask somebody. <laughs> it's one of the perils of asking back somebody who's been here before is I know your names. <laughs> <clears throat> but I want to read to you from a scripture, a very familiar scripture, one that is often read in conjunction with the Lord's Supper, from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 
Paul writes there to the Corinthian Christians, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And so let a person examine himself, and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So as uh, you know, this is a wonderful, a joyful celebration, but it's also a serious one. And, and so the scripture just warns us that before we partake, we need to examine ourselves. So if there's sin in our lives that we need to confess and forsake, we should do that. If there's someone we've wronged, someone we're not getting along with as a Christian, that we're hateful toward, we need to make that right, etc. The Lord knows your heart and mine and so as we seek him now for just a moment of confession and self-examination, let's just ask him for what we need today. And so, Heavenly Father, as we come to you this morning, um, we need your forgiveness, first and foremost, for the things we've done, the words we've said, the attitudes we've had that have been sinful in your sight. And so we ask that you'll forgive us and cleanse us, and as we come to your table, that you'll fill us with your Spirit. And Father, if there are things that weigh upon our hearts and lives, we pray that You'll give us grace and courage to uh, make them right in your sight and then with other people if that's necessary. And Father, we just uh, thank you that this table is for us as your people. We know that the word suggests that those who aren't your, ch your children shouldn't partake. And yet we also know, Lord, that there's no better time than right now to come to faith in Christ. And so if there's someone here this morning, Lord, who doesn't know you but would like to, who is sorry for their sin in your sight, I just pray you'll lead them to repentance and faith in your Son, that they might be forgiven and given the gift of eternal life. And Father, we remember the price that our Lord Jesus paid, that we might celebrate this his supper together. And we bless your name, O God, for sending your Son to be our Savior. In Christ's name, amen. So, is there anyone who's been appointed? <laughs> Randy? And maybe Ryan, you can come too, if that'd be okay. <laughs> so, um, this em emblem that we'll uh, distribute in just a moment um, is an emblem of the broken body of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, we'll ask our brother Randy to give thanks for it before we partake.
So the scriptures tell us that um, on the night that he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus Christ took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This um, cup that we'll partake of is the emblem of the shed blood of our Lord Jesus. And I'll ask our brother Ryan to give thanks. No? Okay. No, that's okay. No, no, no problem. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this uh, symbol of your shed blood. And Father, we know that it was a great cost in terms of the punishment of your body, the death of your body, but also the your separation from your Father because of our sin that you are bearing. And so we pray that you'll give us a new appreciation of what you went through. And today we do this in remembrance of you. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1 Corinthians 11, <clears throat> Paul continues by saying that in the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then uh, he adds, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Loving Father, thank you for our privilege, <clears throat> the privilege that you have bought for us at great cost, that we can proclaim the death of our Lord Jesus simply by participating in this uh, simple ceremony. We do so gladly, Father, with thankful hearts because of all you've done for us, praying for your grace and strength in our lives for the week to come, that we might live in such a way as to display the love of God for those who are around and to speak of the love of God when we get the opportunity. And so I ask your rich blessing upon your people here, those who have been here this morning. We pray, dear Heavenly Father, that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and 
the fellowship and communion of the Holy Spirit might rest upon us now and until Jesus comes. We pray it in his name. Well, thanks for coming this morning, and uh, thanks to those at the back there who have managed the sound. They found the love of God in case, if you're listening to the music uh, through communion, they found that. So, so God bless you, and have a wonderful week. <clears throat>